Good to worship the Lord together, and uh, we're going to continue to worship the Lord now as we uh, take a few minutes to, to look, at, uh, look at His Word. And uh, as Dan mentioned, if you've got your Bibles, um, you can turn them to Acts chapter 6, and it's, uh, oh, probably about four-fifths of the way through the New Testament, so you'll find it if you just kind of look that way and open your, your Bible there. And <laughs> we are uh, been talking about, I think, what it, not a, we've been talking about what it means to be uh, the church now that Jesus has gone back to live in, in heaven. And uh, that set a little bit of panic in amongst the disciples initially because they thought, wow, we're going to be all alone here. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, don't worry, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, who is God, is going to come and live in you. And um, so I will continue to be with you through the person of the Holy Spirit. And so what we have been looking at in the book of Acts is what it um, means to be the church now with Jesus in heaven, uh, what it means to be those that walk um, uh, with Jesus actually in us rather than just beside us. So everywhere we go, everything we say, everything we do, um, we do with the fact that Jesus is animating our life. As we um, read in Galatians chapter 2, I think it's verse 20 or verse 23, um, there the apostle says, it's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ who lives me, uh, who lives in me. And the life that I live now, I don't live in my own strength, but I live in the, in the strength of Christ. And so that's what we're talking about when we come to the book of Acts. And when we look at uh, the passage that we're looking at tonight, we're actually going to look at um, probably about 60 verses of Scripture. And we're going to cover them really quick. But it's um, 60 verses that are a glimpse of what one Christ follower looked like. About what it means to, for this one individual, about what his life looked like. A life that was um, uh, one that was directed and filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is an encouragement, I think, an example to all of us who follow Jesus to know what, is, what are the possibilities, what are the evidence that, that we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, I, uh, Acts chapter 6, I, I just want to um, just read the first, oh, first half of the verse 8 for a minute and get our, get our um, bearings there, and then we'll move our way through it a little bit farther. But it simply says, um, and Stephen... And Stephen, we met last week, he was one of the, the seven individuals that was chosen, and he was chosen because he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was full of faith, and so they chose him to look after a problem in the church. And so we come back to him here in verse 8, and it says, and Stephen, full of grace and power. So that is uh, sort of the, the description then of his life initially. That's a, a really short summary of what he was like. And that can be a summary of all of our lives. Uh, it should be a summary of everyone's life who is a Christian. We are full of grace and we are full of power. We are full of grace because Jesus Christ lives in us. And we are full of power because, as Paul says, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, that exalted him in heaven, that same power is in at, work, uh, in, at work in us. And so Stephen is full of grace and power. In fact, he was so full of grace and power that in one place... The, the men who are talking with him describe him as one who has the face of an angel. Now, I don't know how they knew that. Uh, I don't know what an angel looks like. I've never seen an angel. Um, well, my wife, I guess I get to see her all the time. Um, that's got to be worth some points. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I've never seen the face of an angel. Um, but we do know that Moses, when he was in the presence of God up on the mountain, and um, uh, he came down from being with God for uh, 40 days and 40 nights, it says that his face shone. 
And it shone so brightly that he had to put a veil over his face because people couldn't um, handle the purity and the, the glow that was coming um, from Moses' face. So uh, there, there was um, sort of an external uh, look to him. There was something about his appearance even that evidenced the fact that this man was one who was sold out for Jesus Christ. But what are some of the things that, that, uh, that tell us about Stephen that we can help understand? Well, this is what it means to have a life that's full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power. Well, you read a little bit farther and it says, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Uh, there's some curious things, at least there, that are interesting to me. Uh, one, it wasn't just the apostles that were doing great signs and wonders. And some people um, uh, want to try and say that all the great um, gifts of God happened in the apostolic age. And when the apostles um, died off, so all these great signs and wonders of God died off. I'm not convinced by that argument because there are great things being done by God around the world today. And there are still people that are being healed from blindness. There are still people being healed from lameness. There are still people being called out of darkness into light. The power of God is being displayed in miraculous ways around the world. Uh, and we've heard some of those over these last little while. Uh, and, and I'm sure we're going to hear more. And I hope that we begin to hear more of them taking place in our community. So there were great things taking place. Some of those things just take place through prayer. If you are a person of prayer and you are more and more committed to prayer, as Elijah did, it said that Elijah prayed, for, uh, prayed that it would not rain for three years in, in obedience to Scripture, and it didn't rain for three years. And it says of Elijah that he was a man just like you and I. So if we're full of grace and power and we're a people of prayer and we pray the Word of God, there can be extraordinary things that are accomplished because we are praying. But I think also this is a reference to the fact that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it talks there about those that are full of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Spirit of giving, has given gifts. And he's given gifts of healings. He's given gifts of faith. He's given gifts of miracles. He's given gifts of prophecies. He's given all sorts of gifts. And so as we are people of God, as we are full of the Holy Spirit, there should be, or there could be, these great opportunities for things of great power to follow us as we serve God and as we minister to God. So that's one of the evidences that we see in Stephen's life that this was a man full of grace and power uh, was that there was these extraordinary things as he asked God and as he prayed before God, God used him to perform amazing things in his particular community. Uh, we go a little bit farther and it says um, in verses 9 to 10 that then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of, of the freedmen as it was called, and of the Syrians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You know that uh, I think another evidence of somebody who is full of the spirit and full of faith and full of power is the fact that you can sometimes um, answer questions and, and confront people in the issues of your life with wisdom that is beyond yourself. But sometimes as you're talking in a situation and sometimes as you're discussing a, a question that maybe one of your peers raises, one of your classmates, one of your workmates, um, one of your neighbors, uh, maybe somebody in your family and they ask you a question and, and you think, oh man, and then all of a sudden you just, this, this, all these things come into your mind. Where do they come from? I think they come from the Spirit of God that is in us and working in us. And in Luke chapter uh, 12, verse uh, 11 to 12, uh, it says there, 
that these kind of things will happen when we're people who are filled with the Spirit. Uh, it says there, uh, and uh, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Another evidence that we are full of the Holy Spirit, that we are full of faith, that we are um, full of power and grace, is that God will get us into situations that only He can give us the words to speak. And we see that here as Stephen, who is likely, um, you know, sort of uneducated as the other apostles were. It tells us a little bit earlier that, that these, these, these brains of religion were confounded because they, they couldn't answer him. His answers were so clear and sharp. So another evidence, I think, that we are spirit-filled and that we are walking with God is that we get ourselves um, out of situations or we deal with situations that people say, wow, where did that come from? And they're dumbfounded by our responses to their questions and the situations that they ask us about. Uh, I think uh, uh, another thing that I see about him is that after they had done all this stuff and uh, they said, we've got to find something against this man. We've got to figure out a way to bring him down. And so you read verse 11 and on, and it says, they secretly instigated men who said, and then they, they brought up all these lies against Stephen's life. And so uh, it got me to thinking, uh, and there's other individuals in the scripture that are along this line, but it got me to thinking that another evidence that we are those that are full of grace and full of power um, is that we live lives that are, 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 there is an absence of any glaring weaknesses. That if people investigate our lives, if they dig deep, if they follow us around for a week or for two weeks, they're not going to dig up a whole bunch of garbage on us. And I think that's an evidence that we are walking not in our strength, but we're walking in the power of Jesus. We're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In the book of Daniel, chapter 6, we read the story about Daniel and how he was one of the top three rulers in the land at that time. And the king wanted to promote him to the number one ruler. And the other two guys thought, no, we're going to have none of this. We want to bring this guy down. And so it says uh, of these guys that in Daniel's particular situation... uh, In verse um, 4 and 5, it said there that uh, then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could not find any ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. That is the evidence of somebody who is walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence of somebody who is living a life with Jesus Christ in them, working out of them. It's the evidence of of one who 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 is sold out to God. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes from time to time. But there's an indication that if somebody wants to corner us, if somebody wants to get us, they can't find anything about us. And it's not because we're, 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 we're just good at hiding. It's just because we're trying to be pleasing to God. And we do that because we're men and women who have been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And as it says in a couple other plays, um, because of all that God has done for you, live in a way that is pleasing to God. And so we see that with a, with a Christ follower like Stephen, some of the evidence is that he was full of grace and full of the Spirit and full of power in his life was that he did great things for God. He was just an available instrument for God. When stuff came up, Stephen was there and he was willing to get his hands dirty. 
When we think about Stephen, he was one who, who spoke and defended himself against stuff that he had never thought he could defend himself against. Um, it might be an, uh, an argument that you have at school over creation and evolution. It might be an argument that you have with somebody about whether abortion is right or wrong. It, it might be an argument that you have with somebody about whether Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And you really don't have it all in your head. You don't understand it all. But you get into that discussion and, and the Holy Spirit and God just fills you with stuff to say that is just amazing. And it, and it just silences the arguments. And so we see he was able to speak great things. We, he lived this life that was without glaring weaknesses. And then another thing that we, we find about him is that he was uh, an individual that was um, studied in the word of God. I think anybody who wants to be a, a Christ follower is one that is a student of the word of God. It doesn't mean that you'll memorize it from, from, end, uh, from beginning to end. Uh, it doesn't mean that you'll know everything that it says. But it does mean that there's this love for the Word of God and there's this growing knowledge base that you have in, 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 in the words of Christ, in the words of God to us. And that's where we see in this whole of chapter 7 then, they get together and they, they cast all these lies against him. And, and, and his response to them is a response to a question um, that they ask him uh, whether or not um, the temple is important and the law of Jesus is important. And these guys have brought all these lies against things that he's been saying. And so now he has this opportunity to defend himself. And in 51 verses or 50 verses, Stephen defends himself against their accusations. And they really revolved around a couple of things. They, they were saying that Stephen was one that um, denied the, the, the place of the temple in their religious life. In other words, they thought that the only place you could meet, the only place that God met you, was at the temple. And remember, we've been reading that when, when, when God moved amongst them, they started meeting in homes. They started preaching in the streets. They started preaching anywhere they could. They started talking about Jesus anywhere they could. And so there was this argument that was taking place of where is God located? And sometimes we get that notion that we're going to go to church because that's where God is. And it's sometimes the notion is, well, God somewhere hangs around up there, and if we sing loud enough, and if we worship clearly enough, that God's going to drop out of the ceiling, and, and He's going to be here. But this is where God is. I'm going to go to church to meet God. Well, some people still believe that so strongly, that they don't believe that God is anywhere else. And so Stephen addresses that question with them. And the second uh, uh, issue that he addresses with them is whether or not he is a lawbreaker. Whether or not he, 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 he believes in, in the Old Testament and the Torah. And so those are the two questions he tackles. And we're going to go through this really quickly. And you'll, you'll want to read it on your own because it takes a long time to read it. But if, if you want a summary uh, of, of probably the book of um, Exodus and, and um, Genesis, then just read Stephen's response. Um, it is an amazing response of the Old Testament and what God is up to and what God is about. And so the first place he starts with is with Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. Abraham lived in a place called Mesopotamia. It was a place far away from, from the people of God. And in fact, there wasn't really a people of God at that time. And uh, Stephen says to these guys, he says, Well, the God of our fathers appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Like Mesopotamia was like at the far end of the earth. It was like Timbuktu. If Jonah 
jumped in a boat to go off to Tarshish. That was at one end of the world. And Mesopotamia was at the other end of the world. And you see what Stephen is saying? He's saying God spoke to Abraham in Mesopotamia. This is the first kind of dagger in their argument that God was located in the temple at Jerusalem. He goes from um, Abraham in, in verses 2 to 8 to Joseph. And here in, in Joseph, he, he makes a significant shot at them uh, in verse 9. And he says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph. And here's a hint that Stephen is going to um, speak with real conviction to these guys. He says, But the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, and God deserted him? No, it says in verse 9, But God was with him. See what he's saying? He's saying God is not localized in Jerusalem. God is not localized in the temple. When, when Joseph was abandoned by his brothers, when he was sold into slavery and he was sent into Egypt, God was with him. And, and Stephen uses Egypt six times. He mentions it to make his point that, that even in Egypt, God was there. That he was with Joseph, and it says that he rescued him from all of his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom and made him the governor of all of Egypt. And so he's saying to them, even in Egypt, God was with his people. That even in Egypt, God spoke to his people. That even in Egypt, the people knew something of the presence of God. So not only was he in Mesopotamia, where Abraham was, but he's also in Egypt, where Joseph was. And then he goes on to Moses. And, and here another shot is leveled at these leaders um, uh, and, and their attacks on Moses. But, but again, Moses um, assumed that the people of God would recognize him, that he was the chosen one to deliver him. Well, they even rejected Moses. They said, who are you? Um, God hasn't sent you. Are you going to kill us as well? And they disowned him. And the people were disobedient in their hearts, as, the, as the, this passage says, and they kept wanting to turn and go back to Egypt. But the, the text, and it's a long one there about Moses, reminds us that God was even with Moses in Sinai, in the desert. And in fact, God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. And, so, and, and he called that place holy. So, so what's going on here? Well, God is in Mesopotamia with Abraham. God is in Egypt with Joseph. God is in the Sinai with, with, with Moses. And in fact, he calls the place holy ground. And so he's saying the presence of God, it's not localized in the temple. It's wherever God needs to be. It's wherever the people of God are. That is where God is. And then he goes on even farther. In verses 44 to 50 of the passage, and he talks about David and Solomon. And David and Solomon were, were the ones that were responsible, David, in supplying all the things for the temple, and then Solomon in building the temple. And, and, and they built this amazing temple there. Uh, and through the desert, you remember that they had the, the tabernacle, which was a tent that they set up. But even in that tabernacle, God was not there. He was in a pillar of fire um, by night. He was in a cloud by day. And God went ahead of them. So God continued to lead the people in Sinai. But when they got to the to the temple, and they built this amazing temple, and Solomon prayed. Do you remember what he prayed? He said, Will God indeed dwell with mankind on earth? Behold, 
Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less the temple that I have built. It's like, like Stephen drives the dagger home in their argument about God being localized in the temple in Jerusalem. He says Solomon's very prayer was God can't be localized in a building because God is everywhere. And so Stephen is building this case against their first accusation against him that somehow God is localized and he's saying that's absolutely untrue. He said, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. He appeared to Joseph in Egypt. He appeared to Moses in the Sinai. When we built the temple in Jerusalem and stopped our wandering, even that temple couldn't contain God because God was bigger than this whole universe. And so he, he, by, by that, he's, he's, he's reminding us what God is like. And loved ones, when, when you're a Christ follower, God lives in you. God goes with you wherever you go. Go into all the words and world, and lo, I am with you always. You can't escape the presence of God. You can't get away from God. You can't get away from His leading and His guiding and His influence in your life. It's not like you leave here, you go out in your world and you do your stuff, and God doesn't know what you're doing, or you can't find God, and then you come here Sunday night, and boom, here's God. Joseph, or, or Stephen is, is arguing back to them, saying, no, God is with you everywhere you go. And then the second thing that he's hammering back on them is they're accusing him of rejecting God. They're accusing him of rejecting the law of God. And look at the, the things that he says to them. He says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. They wouldn't listen to the dream that God had given Joseph. And they rebelled against the word of God and they sold him into Egypt. Moses was rejected. In verse 22, it says there, and, um, uh, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of Egypt, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Uh, verse 27 says, But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? In verse 35, we read that, um, that uh, Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? Uh, and then in verse 39, again, it says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. See, what Stephen is turning their argument on their head. He says, it's not me that's rejecting God. He says, you guys have a history of rejecting the people that God sends your way. And you, you cast them aside. You rebel against them. And in fact, you're rebelling against God. And then he comes to this just amazing statement, which I think to me demonstrates again that he was full of the Holy Spirit because normal people don't say stuff like this. But he gets to the end of all of this. He is, he is with boldness, he has defended himself against these guys with a biblical argument. And then he comes to verse 51 of chapter 7. And he says to them, and listen to this, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Wow. Like, these are individuals who thought they knew everything about God. These were individuals who thought they had God in a bag. These were individuals who thought that they were honoring God with all that they did, but they, he says, you're stiff-necked. You don't listen to God. Your hearts are still as hard as the day that they were when they were born. And he says, you continue to reject God. And then he goes on. As your fathers did, so do you. 
In other words, as your fathers rejected Joseph, as your fathers rejected Moses, as your fathers rejected the prophets, so do you. You are bent on rebellion. And then he goes on even further and he says, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. And then this, who you betrayed and murdered. You received the law that was, as was delivered by angels and did not keep it. He says, it's not me who's breaking the law. It's not me who's not listening to God. It's you because you killed the Son of God. That takes guts. That takes courage. That's not raw, normal courage. That's courage that comes from being an individual that is full of grace and full of power and full of the Holy Spirit that you speak truth no matter what the cost might be in your life and in your situation. And then the final thing that we see about him being a person that's full of, um, full of grace and truth and power is his Christ-likeness. Loved ones, if you are full of the Holy Spirit and if you are being guided and directed by the Spirit of God and if Christ lives in you, then you are going to become like Christ. He's going to win. He's going to start changing you into his likeness. And you say, well, how do, how do you figure that one out? And, and you, we'll read verse 54 on, and it said, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. Their faces contorted. Their anger was visible in them. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Christ-likeness? What did Jesus say when he was dying on the cross? Lord Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he says further, And Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He could not pronounce what Jesus said, Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But he could plead on their behalf, Lord, give them grace and mercy still. Don't let this be their final act of judgment. Don't, don't let this be the final moment at which they reject you and close their hearts towards you. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I was thinking a little bit about this um, and some of the implications uh, of, of Stephen as he's in this situation. And there's a lot of things that, that came through my head, and I'll just kind of blast these out to you. Uh, the first one was um, Stephen died in the prime of his life in his ministry. Um, you know, we don't always understand the ways of God. We don't always understand um, why God works in such ways. Some people live way past their three score and ten years, as the Bible says he's granted to mo most men. Others are cut down in their prime. Stephen was a recognized leader in the church. He was a gift of, of God to this church. He had gifts. He had administrative skills. He had preaching skills. And yet he died at the hands of these individuals who hated him. So just because you're a Christ follower doesn't mean that we're immune from these sorts of things. It doesn't mean that we, we have any guarantees on what kind of a life we will live or how long we'll live that life. Our lives and our times are in the hand of God. 
And so as we see it with Stephen, his job was to honor God. His job was to obey God. His job was to walk in the Spirit of God. It was God's job to say, now is the time for you to come home. And so with Stephen, we see that God took him in the prime of his life. The second thing that I see about Stephen's death is that it is possible to have great confidence in the face of death. I was reading the newspaper um, today just very, very quickly, and on the front um, cover of the province was, um, was a, a picture of that young girl, 16 years old, who was stabbed to death up in a house party uh, in the interior. And uh, the, sort of the last uh, statement that she made was, I don't want to die. Now, I don't know if that was a statement made out of the fact that she was fearful about what awaited her at death. I don't know if that was a statement made out of the fact that she was so young and she said, I've got so much life ahead of me, I don't want to die. But the fact of the matter is, is we can go even to our death with, with extraordinary confidence, no matter how old we might be. And there's no guarantee that we will live to a certain age. Where does such confidence come from? Where, does it, where do we gain such confidence that as we're breathing our last breath, we can, like Stephen, say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Where does such confidence come from knowing that when you die, you're going to go in the presence of God? And There's a whole world of things that we could even say here about the reality that there is a heaven, that this life is not all that there is, that don't be fooled and don't be lied to in thinking that when you die, it's all over and you just kind of go back to the earth and, and you go back into the trees and into the water and that's the end of it for you. The scripture is so clear in our own hearts, say, um, as, as Ecclesiastes say, God has placed eternity in the hearts of all men. And don't tell me that there are not been times when you go to sleep at night or when a friend of yours dies or when, when you're confronted with death that you don't start thinking, there's got to be more than this. What happens after I die? So there's a whole lot that we could say about that. But where does this confidence come from? That in the, in the face of death, at the moment of death, we can look up and we can say, Jesus, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Well, it comes from knowing that you are right with God. It comes from knowing that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. It comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven. It comes from knowing that you now stand in the righteousness of Christ and not in your own strength. And one of the things that we used to ask when we would do evangelism explosion, and you probably heard this question a, a, a number of times, but one of the questions that they ask it as they knock on somebody's door and, and they, they give them the opportunity to talk, they say, um, if you were to die and stand before Jesus today and he were, asked, he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? It's amazing the answers that you get. Well, some say, well, there is no heaven. Um, um, some say that, uh, 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 that, that I'll get in because of my good works. All of that is lies. The only way, the only right answer to that question is, you should let me into heaven because I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has died in my place Jesus' blood has forgiven my sins. He is my Savior. And so you get into heaven on the basis of the finished and complete work of Jesus Christ. Where did the confidence of Stephen come from as he, in those last moments of his life, as he was able to look up into heaven and say, into your hands I commit my spirit? It came from the fact that he knew that his sins were forgiven. He knew that salvation came only in Jesus' name. And he had put his confidence and his trust 
in Jesus Christ. Another thing that I was wrestling with as I thought about this passage, uh, and this is such an, a, a beautiful passage, uh, and again, I, there, there's so much more we could say about this, but simply this, death ushers you immediately into the presence of God. There is so much stuff out there which is unbiblical. Stuff like purgatory, where you, where you go into this sort of holding tank for a period of time and, and then you can maybe earn your way from purgatory into heaven. Or stuff like soul sleep, so that when you die, your soul really just goes to sleep and you drift around in sort of endless la-la land until the end of it all. That is nowhere found or taught in Scripture. But Scripture, when it speaks about death, says that at the moment of death, you are either ushered into the presence of God or you're ushered away from the presence of God. And the parable of Lazarus and the rich man is one of the clearest on that, is that the angels um, um, ushered the poor man into the presence of God. And Isaiah, a, a terrifying passage, says, and the king of Hades waits to receive your soul in death. You immediately depart from this world into either heaven or into a place that awaits the judgment of God. <clears throat> Final thing that sort of caught my attention uh, in this passage was it says that when Stephen looked up in heaven, uh, he saw Jesus standing. And I don't want to make um, too much of, of that um, deal. But I, I, I like to think of it in, in a sense that um, <clears throat> Jesus is standing there and he's sort of reaching out his hand and he's pulling him to heaven. He's standing there acting as his advocate. He's, he's saying that um, Peter is one of, or, or that Stephen is one of mine. That Stephen is, is one that has been washed in the blood. That Stephen is one whose sins have been forgiven. And it's like Jesus is standing to welcome him into the very presence of God. And as I thought about that, I thought... Um, for yourself and for myself, when you die, will Jesus stand for you? When you die, will Jesus um, um, defend you before the Father? And I use that word very carefully. When you die, do you know that you will be ushered into the very presence of God because the finished work of Jesus Christ and his reception of you? See, that's, that's the amazing thing, again, of a life that's full of grace and truth and power. It's this confidence that one has in death. That you can face death with certainty, you can face death with confidence, and you can know that you will be ushered into the very presence of God and Jesus will be standing waiting to receive you. That's the hope of the scriptures. That's the hope of the gospel. That's, that's what the early church was all about. That's what the name of Jesus is all about. That's why we are to have boldness. That's why we are to speak the word of God. Because men and women are dying without Jesus Christ. They are dying because they have no knowledge of heaven and earth. They are dying because they are stiff-necked and hard-hearted and don't want to turn towards Jesus. And we need to continue to do our very best in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the boldness that he gives us to share with people gently when they ask us to give a reason for the hope that's in us, when they ask us to defend why we have confidence to gently take them to the place where they see their need for Jesus Christ and they see that there's no other hope in life for, for, in anywhere else for eternal life except in Jesus Christ. That's the amazing thing about this gospel. That's the amazing thing about the book of Acts is that we see salvation belongs to the Lord and it is possible for us to have confidence even in death to know that we will be ushered into the very presence of God.